welcome to Pali, the Hindu's weekly podcast. I'm Prashant Verma, your host for today. The union government last week released the National Monetization Pipeline, a document which lists the names of various government infrastructure assets that will be leased out to private companies over the next four years. The government believes that monetizing these public assets, which are underutilized, will bring an additional revenue worth almost 6 lakh crore rupees to the government. The government believes that this will also help it build fresh infrastructure and help boost the economy. The opposition overwhelmed isn't impressed. It says that the government is selling off valuable national assets to chronic capitalists. To discuss this issue, we have with us today Dr. Montek Singh Aluwalia, a former deputy chairman of the erstwhile planning commission, and also Mr. Ajay Shah, a professor at the National Institute for Public Finance and Policy. Welcome to both our guests. Uh, my first question is, uh, I want to know your uh, thoughts about the idea of monetizing operating assets to build fresh assets. Uh, I think that's at the core of the uh, whole plan. And also the aspect of uh, the government trying to de-risk the initial stage development of infrastructure assets. Mr. Monte or Ajay, we can go ahead first. Yeah, let Ajay go ahead. Okay, thanks, Montek. Thanks, Prashant. Uh, so I think the grand strategic question is like this. Case one, we have government developing assets, government owning the asset forever, and this pathway has certain consequences. Case two, we had the huge development of PPP, where the philosophy was that the private sector will develop assets and the private sector will operate assets. And of course, there is an interface with the government in many, many aspects of that. Now, we found that when you try to do the PPP pathway, it runs into many difficulties. Uh, The government in India does not have the capacity to enter into contracts and deal with uh, contract negotiation and contracting difficulties. And many, many pieces of the development process are really very difficult for private people to solve. So is there a way out? And conceptually, it seems that there is a way out, which is that government organizations like an NTPC or an NHAI should do the early development phase, the highly risky phase, get it up to an operating asset and then sell it off to private people. So the asset goes out from the public balance sheet to the private balance sheet and you have a regulated private utility that is the operating aspect of the asset. And then the money that is freed up there can go back with the government to develop new assets. That's the big idea. And the philosophy is that developing infrastructure assets is particularly difficult under Indian governance constraints. When you get to an operating asset which is being told, at that point, the government interface is less difficult. And so this is a trade-off in terms of the complexities of state capacity. Now, you could do an outright sale or you could do this asset monetization that the government is discussing and, you know, they have their pros and cons. But fundamentally, conceptually, this is the idea. This is the question. I personally think there is merit in this thought process that given constraints of state capacity in India, we have had many difficulties with PPP contracting and with private people doing development of infrastructure assets. Okay. Dr. Montek, your take? No, I think uh, Adre has uh, set out the nature of the problem clearly. 
And, um, you know, I think the bottom line in all this is uh, what's the alternative? I think there are many people uh, in the country who have reservations about bringing in the private sector into areas that were earlier being run by the public sector. Now, if resources were not a constraint, you know, you can imagine somebody saying that, look, um, the public sector has all the resources necessary. I prefer the public sector to do the job. But the point is, at the moment, the public sector simply doesn't have the resources. So the real question is uh, twofold. One is that for new infrastructure, is it better to bring in private sector, set up a framework, a, a contractual framework, where what the private sector has to do uh, will be clearly specified, and then let the private sector do it, bringing their own resources. I mean, that's one model. Uh, the other model, as Ajay pointed out, is that in the construction period of infrastructure, all kinds of risks come up. Uh, and that somehow those risks are greater when it's the private sector involved than if it's the public sector. And this is an open, this is a questionable hypothesis because the same issues, whether it's land acquisition or getting rid of encroachments and all the rest of it, come up with the public sector also. But it's quite possible that the uh, degree of controversy is much greater when it's a private sector entity, in which case you say, well, look, let the private sector set up, public sector set up the asset and then just sell it off or realize the value that's embedded. The key question is that we have a huge amount of infrastructure to do in future not just economic infrastructure, but social, economic, uh, social infrastructure and health and education. And also, quite honestly, uh, a whole new range of economic infrastructure consequent on the problems of managing climate change. Now, the factual position indisputably is that the public sector doesn't have resources. So then the question arises that if there is a huge amount of value embedded in existing infrastructure, why not realize that value by handing over this infrastructure to the private sector and let the public sector use the resources to build the infrastructure we need? Now, for that discussion to take place, there has to be agreement that the public sector doesn't have the resources to do it itself. I mean, if people feel that it has the resources or people feel that it can incur more debt and raise the fiscal deficit and borrow the money, they will obviously have a different view. So I think the first thing we have to make up our mind is, uh, do we agree that the government has to make sure that a huge amount of infrastructure is built? And secondly, that the government doesn't have the resources uh, to build it itself. And when I say the government in this context, I mean both the central government and uh, state governments. Now, for several years, we have operated on the assumption that the government simply doesn't have the resources uh, to do it itself. And that's why the whole PPP effort was started uh, in the early years of the UPA and even a little bit before that. And the second issue is that if you're going to do it that way, uh, what are the problems? That's a very serious issue, which needs thorough debate. And I think Ajay has brought out uh, the critical issues there. I mean, the first issue clearly is, are you realizing adequate value? That really relates ultimately to the kind of bidding conditions uh, that you specify and how much those bidding conditions bring in all the possible credible players to make bids. Second, and this is something which a lot of people worry about, and it's even been there in the debate, 
that doesn't lead to cronyism. Uh, the only way of ensuring that it doesn't lead to cronyism is, first of all, to make the bidding conditions such that the people eligible to bid are not a predetermined and very small set of people. To some extent, by the way, because of the capital intensity of the project, not everybody is going to be able to build a bid. Uh, but, you know, even so, I mean, you can, you can ensure that there is sufficient clarity, sufficient participation. The second area here is really how do you conduct the relationship between the government and the new bidder in whether they actually meet the requirements of the long-term contract? And that's another whole range of problems uh, that need to be addressed. But, you know, all these problems can be sorted out. Yeah, but Dr. Mani, before that, like, I'd actually like to go into all those issues. But before that, like, the fundamental question is, why would the government choose asset monetization over privatization, outright privatization? Doesn't the second option look much better? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know whether the government carefully considered asset privatization, full privatization or not. But, you know, I would, I would point out that one of the, there is no harm in, in actually, my view would be we should do both. Uh, because we don't know what's best. However, one reason for certain things that the government might not want to do outright privatization is if it involves the transfer of a scarce resource like land. I mean, for example, if you're looking at, a let's say, the Jawaharlal Nehru uh, sports stadium, okay, uh, I'm not sure whether that's listed as one of the assets to be monetized. In my view, it should be. But, you know, if... Uh, the idea is either it's going to be run by the government or you'll hand it over to the private sector and say, look, you try to make the maximum revenue out of this and you can bid uh, uh, an upfront fee plus a revenue share. But, you know, that land is so valuable that you may not want to just hand it over. I mean, it's easier to justify a 30-year lease because at the end of that lease, the land stays with the government uh, than to simply hand it over. Now, in another context where the land itself is of no great value, barren land, far away, etc., yes, you could actually include it uh, and simply hand it over. That's why I feel that um, you know these issues are issues of choice. I don't think they're issues where one is right and the other is not right. Uh, I would like to bring two more considerations on the table on this trade-off of uh, whether and when it is better to do an outright transaction versus uh, uh, asset monetization contract as envisaged by the government. Uh, the first is the standard uh, issues that uh, do we want to build a society where there is a gigantic public sector asset ownership spread all over the country. It has deep political and cultural consequences for a country for the government to command vast wealth and to the extent that assets are controlled by a more dispersed population of many, many different persons. This is better and healthier for society. So I think this is one consideration that we should put in, which is how powerful do you want a government to be? How much do you want state domination of society? And my view is that reduced state domination of society is an important consideration. The second aspect is practical. Uh, when a private person owns an infrastructure asset, the ONM tends to get done better because a person has self-interest to make it a high-quality asset. And uh, generally, uh, when there is an alternative contracting arrangement, uh, you tend to get underinvestments in ONM. So 
the economist Larry Summers once famously said that no one in the entire history of the world ever washed a rented car. So if I have rented a car, I'm not going to take care of it. So in similar fashion, if I am a private vendor who is tolling a highway, but I do not own that highway and I have got it on some complex asset monetization contract, I will take less care of that asset. And that is a consideration that we should bring on the table. And uh, similarly, on the practical aspects, you've got to wonder that uh, entering into a complex contract with a government organization for a 10-year horizon, 20-year horizon, 30-year horizon involves a greater risk for private people because the government in India, the Indian state, whether it is a city or a state or a union government, the Indian state is not a great party to have a contract with. The government does not behave very well when it has to deal with counterparties. So a clean asset sale puts an end to the complexity of government interface. You get it done once and then after that, you get the full efficiencies of a market economy. You don't have to look over your shoulder worrying about how the government is not going to play by a complex contract. So a bit of the PPP contracting complexity dribbles into the asset monetization strategy that runs short of an outright transaction. When we talk about the uh, safety of the assets that are leased out, like are there ways to make sure that uh, there's no asset stripping as such by the, uh, given the limited uh, lease period? Well, by the way, I um, I just want to say that I agree with what uh, Ajay has said, and that's a very important point. That you know, when you when you have a thirty-year contract or something, uh, your incentive to put money into the asset, which would ensure that it remains productive in the thirty-first and the thirty-second and the thirty-third uh, uh, year, definitely goes down compared to when you own it yourself, and that's an unresolved problem. Uh, I'm not sure how uh, how how to handle it, but people should certainly think about that. And uh, clearly, one option would be that you uh, allow a renewal of the lease even before the lease ends. But then you need a competitive process there. But you know, the evidence suggests. I mean, for example, if you take the Taj Hotels owning uh, this very very valuable property in Delhi, where their flagship hotel is. I mean, that was a fixed lease, but they didn't allow the hotel to run down right at the end, they're clearly hoping that it would get renewed. So I think the problem can be resolved, but I think what Ajay has pointed out is actually a very important issue. Uh, and we need to take that into account. So are there currently ways that, let's say, a private player actually leases out his property to uh, another private player? Are there ways that the private player makes sure uh, he gets over this problem of passage or work? It comes back to how much complexity do you want to build into a contract? So. Uh, Imagine that I've got a highway for a 30-year time horizon and uh, in the contract, the government can embed some clauses where I have to do certain amount of O&M and maintain right quality. Now you are starting to go closer to the complexity of the PPP world that you, the more complex you make the contract, the more difficult it is for the Indian state to achieve state capacity in playing its role in the contract and all too often the Indian state is known to indulge in sheer dadagiri. So private people are not comfortable entering into complex contracts with the Indian state. So you come back to that problem. Now, that doesn't mean that outright sale is a panacea. With an outright sale, you will still have a government regulator and we will face the problem of regulatory capacity. So the trade-off that we have to apply our mind to, and there is not necessarily any one answer. The trade-off is 
can we build regulatory capacity and is the ask in regulatory capacity lower easier as compared to building contracting capacity this is the question in both areas the indian state is very weak so we should have no illusions the indian state is weak in regulation the indian state is weak in contracting the indian state is weak in ppp contracting so now out of all these you got to pick your poison okay Dr. Mode, I want to move on to uh, the risk of cronyism. Uh, so, uh, you talked about the uh, framing the uh, competitive bidding process. Uh, so, so, how exactly do we go about it? And uh, so, what exactly is the practical solution to the risk of cronyism? And also, the uh, another risk is about the domination of a few firms. Uh, and what are the implications that is asked for the consumers? Uh, Huge, huge firm could just take over, a, let's say, the, the railway sector or the shipping sector and raise prices. How do you get over that problem, Dr. Monte? Well, you know, uh, on the issue of domination, uh, there are two separate issues here. I mean, one is uh, because of the limited number of players, uh, the bidding may not be totally fair and you may not get a full realization of value. I mean, that's a valid point. So mind you, if you open it up to including foreign players, then uh, you're not limited to small players. There is an issue whether the credibility uh, of, uh, of our system will attract enough foreign players. But, you know, in all these things, over time, things sort of change. Now, as far as uh, becoming hostage to a particular player is concerned, obviously, uh, many of these projects, by their very nature, true of all infrastructure projects, I mean, you don't have competition in the sense that if you're handing over a road from Delhi to Agra, uh, there isn't a parallel road Delhi to Agra competing with it. I mean, you can go by rail, you can go by air, you can take a somewhat longer route. There's only one major highway between Delhi and Agra. And you certainly don't want uh, the person who's got it to start behaving like a monopolist. So what do you do? Well, what do you do is you lay out uh, in the operating contract that you sign, sort of like a PPA or some such thing, you lay out what are the terms of service that the contractor has to provide. Now, all this is subject to what Ajay said, that the government's contracting ability is very poor. And I totally endorse that view because, by the way, we do not, we do not bring in sufficient number of expertise with background, experts with background to draft these contracts. And one reason is we don't have that many experts with the relevant background because all these things are new. But in principle, it is possible to have a, a relatively more complex contract and to have a way of adjudicating within the terms of that contract with a sufficiently credible independent set of regulators who would inspire the confidence of the investors that actually if there is a dispute between the investor and the government, they will get a fair hearing. Now, this may not actually be easy because, you know, uh, we don't have a sufficiently uh, developed system to create credibility of independent regulators. I mean, many people believe that if a regulator is appointed by the government, then in the end, they're going to give a judgment by and large, which the government is happy with. Well, you know, these are all aspects of institutional development. We just have to take the plunge and see what we can do and most of all, the government has to keep its mind open. I think one of the most critical things in this area is that the, the, the regulatory authority, which is uh, uh, going to look at these things, 
should not be under the institutional control of the ministry that enters into the contract. I mean, if, if you had a regulatory authority that was different from the ministry that ran the contract, that originally entered into the contract, you would get a lot more probability of independence. But these are all areas we need to experiment with. You know, however, the critical thing I would say, the critical thing is uh, that I, I have to ask the question, what's the alternative? I mean, let's accept the fact that there are going to be a lot of problems. So what is the alternative? The alternative is that we limit ourselves to what the government can do and uh, by, with its own resources and accept a lower trajectory of infrastructure development or take these risks and go for a higher trajectory. I'm quite clear in my mind that we should do the latter. Because believe me, when you, when you draw up a list of what India needs to do, if we are to get back to 7% growth, what it needs to do is humongous. And we don't have the, the idea. There is a lot of money in the economy. There's a lot of money in the world. There's a lot of that money will go to good public, uh, private sector operators. I don't think the government can mobilize the money unless it borrows. I mean, the government can certainly borrow. But then you have to ask the question. I mean, is the government's debt to GDP ratio comfortable? Is the existing fiscal deficit comfortable? And if you believe it is, then that's fine. Uh, I mean, in the short run, it's certainly true. This year, for example, it's certainly true that if the government has an opportunity to spend more of infrastructure, it shouldn't worry too much about the fiscal deficit. But for a 10-year program, I don't think so. Okay. Dr. Shah, your take? Yeah, I'd like to say two things. First is, I agree 100% with what Montek said, that we should experiment with many pathways. We should not presume that we know the right answer. And it's always good to play with multiple pathways and have a lively process of discussion and debate and an empirical process of discovering what works. So we should not presume ahead of time that we know the one truth about how all these things will work. It is healthy and valuable for society to play in many pathways, to go down many roads and be self-aware in terms of watching how these things function in creating an expert community, a research community that will analyze how these things unfold and develop a body of knowledge and experience about what works well under what circumstances. So once again, I don't want to pretend that there is one answer for everything. I feel fairly clear that if you have a simple problem like an electricity generation utility or a highway, then outright sale to the private sector makes more sense. But there are many, many problems that are far more subtle. There are other considerations in many problems. So I feel it's healthy for us as society to go in with an uh, epistemic skepticism and an approach of experimentation and learning. So we say we don't know the answer. There is no one answer. And we will experiment with many answers. And we will develop a body of practical knowledge about what works, where. And I feel that's the healthiest way to go. On the other problem that was discussed, which is about uh, concerns about crony capitalism and excessive capture by any one organization, I would like to say a couple of things. First, as Montek said, uh, opening up this to global players is extremely valuable, not least because the vast amounts of money that is required for this are really best financed using global corporate financial structure. So Indian finance is weak. So even if you had a great management team, 
that same management team sitting in London would do better corporate financial structure as compared to what a good management team in India would do because the Indian team has to deal with the infirmities of Indian finance and the capital controls that India has. So overseas organizations are particularly important in obtaining the most efficient arrangements. I'm very attracted to dispersed shareholding companies as the owners of operating assets. So I feel in our dream world, we should build up trillions and trillions of rupees of balance sheet size in dispersed shareholding companies, not focused uh, ownership companies. So exactly like the debates that have taken place with uh, bank ownership, you're always better off when that shareholding is dispersed. Finally, I remember there was fascinating pro-competitive stuff that was wired into the uh, amazing achievements of port reform in India in the 90s. Uh, for example, at JNPT, there are four terminals and policymakers systematically uh, set up the structure that there are three different vendors and one PSU in the four terminals. So you get intra-port competition and that is such a healthy way to think about it. So I feel a lot of elements of policy can and should be explicitly wired in favor of more competition. Dr. Montek, like, well, I would like to you know, like discuss about the whole prospect of uh, uh, the success of the uh, asset monetization program. Like, we looked at the uh, disinvestment of um, Air India, which hasn't taken off, and then we've got uh, ideas about like monetizing the train or railway assets, which again hasn't taken off again. So, uh, what are the problems that have happened with those in those cases, and how can we overcome them? I mean, because we're going forward with uh, monetizing these public assets. Well, I think these these are questions that would differ from asset to asset. But, you know, I think the history of our efforts at privatizing <clears throat> uh, is littered with cases where the system doesn't actually want to privatize. So it's put forward a set of arrangements which to the government looks very sensible. I mean, for example, any government would like to say when it is privatizing something, that uh, the new owner will not be able to get rid of excess staff. So you put in a, what would be much applauded that for five years you can't change, you can't change uh, the, the size of your staff. But the truth of the matter is that if, if you're a private owner, I mean, uh, making management changes and also scaling down excess labor is one of the key things in efficiency. And, it's well known that many, many, many of our public sector enterprises are grossly overstaffed. So if you come up with a privatization proposal which says that, look, uh, you can't get rid of the staff, you're going to end up with bids that are much lower uh, than you will be willing to accept. So the surest way of killing a privatization effort is to simply say, look, uh, this is a reasonable value for the enterprise. Oh, and by the way, one of the conditions is that you can't fire anybody, but you won't get any bids. You know, this happened a long time ago in the mid-1980s when uh, uh, Mr. Rajiv Gandhi was then the prime minister. And I think we had persuaded him that perennially loss-making public sector units, we should just get rid of because the private sector will do a better job. And one of the units that was then chosen was Scooters India. And it was finally agreed that, yes, uh, if we can privatize Scooters India, that's fine. But actually, the conditions that were imposed, I think at that time, Bajaj Auto 
were quite willing to take it over on conditions that I thought were quite reasonable. But what the ministry came up with was a set of conditions that was more or less guaranteed to make Bajaj Auto say, no, thank you, we don't want to take it over. So I think that uh, when you get lack of clarity on what are the essential things you have to protect, uh, you are going to get a failed privatization. I don't want to say, I have no idea what are the conditions that will be imposed in the asset monetization program. I think these are the sorts of things that should be addressed up front in a policy document. By the way, at the moment, what we have, we have an, an infrastructure pipeline. We have an assertion by the government that we will monetize assets. Then we have a paper by Niti Aayog or two, two volumes, which lists a number of assets. We don't actually, to my knowledge, have a government decision on what it is going to do with this recommendation. In a way, I think uh, making a list of assets which uh, produces a very large number sort of distracts attention. I think it would be much better if the government were to look at the Niti Aayog asset and say that, look, we're going to start off with privatizing these five or six, mon asset monetizing these five or six cases and be very transparent in the terms on which the privatization or the asset monetization is going to be done so that we can people can discuss whether those terms are reasonable at the moment we have no idea dr shai okay some of this uh, is blurring the lines between uh, the infrastructure problem and the distinct debates on privatization and exit of the government from certain assets as an example um, in, on the digital outlet, The Print, uh, yesterday, Siraj Hussain has an article about asset monetization as applied to FCI warehouses. And he has some fascinating facts in there that are in these documents, but I must confess I had not read them. Uh, it turns out that in Borivoli in Bombay, there is an FCI warehouse occupying 120 acres of land. Now, the question should be that in Bombay, in Borivali, do you really want a government asset of 120 acres of land? The best imaginable use of that land is to sell it off, raise money and pay down public debt. So that's really a classic privatization question. If you try to view this through an asset monetization lens, then you will start thinking that I want to give this to a private vendor who will continue to store wheat in this as an agent of the government for the next 30 years. And that really does not make much sense. So I think we should be asking first principles questions about many of these assets that do you really want this to be under government control? Now I'd like to move to our last question. Like, uh, what would be your overall assessment? Like, do you think the monetization plan is going to be a net benefit or a net loss to the economy uh, given all these factors? Dr. Shah? I think that uh, the fundamental strategy get assets out of the government balance sheet is a good one to get money back into the budget so that the government can do the complex tasks of the early stage development of new infrastructure assets. This is a good one. That said, I would always approach this in a spirit of experimentation that uh, we should be doing many things in Indian public policy. We should be self-aware. We should be skeptical. We should measure performance. We should create expert communities, research communities, whereby we develop a body of knowledge and experience. And we look at these things in a dispassionate, 
and sophisticated way. Dr. Montek, your assessment? Well, I completely agree with what Ajay has said. You know, actually, uh, the size of the asset monetization pipeline has been a little breathtaking, and it's making people raise far too many fundamental questions. I think we should, uh, it's just for the government to do, looking at the thing that Niti Aayog has proposed, let them choose five or 10 uh, asset privatization or asset monetization efforts and let them discuss more openly exactly how each one of them is going to be conducted. And preferably, they should be of somewhat different types so that it would it would exemplify the different kinds of problems that arise. I mean, for example, if you're producing something in a competitive market, then quite honestly, uh, there's no particular reason why you should worry. Competition will ensure that the consumer interest is looked after. If you're not producing in a competitive market and you're going to have at least a limited monopoly, then you have to, much, have, to have a much clearer <clears throat> understanding of what exactly are the rules that the contractor is going to follow. All this can be exemplified by choosing five asset monetization uh, examples and making public the terms on which it's going to be monetized. Then the debate will be much more focused. Of course, there will be some people who will say that I don't want any sale of public sector assets. But for them, the only question that you have is then, are you willing not to have as much public investment in new infrastructure uh, as would happen? Or do you think that can happen uh, through some manner that doesn't involve much of a cost. Great, yeah. Thanks for the view. Uh, it was a great discussion. 